Welcome to the Man Talk Show, Training for Men, Answers for Women. I am Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Lee Chambers, who is an environmental psychologist, uh, well-being consultant, and founder of Essentialize, uh, pronounced Essential Eyes, working workplace well-being. So he has spent the last decade working and consulting in a variety of fields, such as local government, corporate organizations, and elite sports. He uses environmental psychology to improve the sleep, nutrition, movement, mindset, and habits of his clients, as well as businesses, and build conscious, powerful, and innovative teams. He has qualifications in performance nutrition, strength and conditioning, is an advanced sleep consultant, and he delivers multidisciplinary workshops focused on improving performance and productivity through increasing employee well-being. Uh, so he's been featured uh, in a ton of places. He's actually from the UK. Uh, so he's been featured in a, in a ton of places across UK media, things like Newsweek, Thrive Global, The Times, Telegraph, Guardian, Glamour, Ritz Herald, that kind of stuff. And he's been featured on a whole bunch of other platforms. But today, Lee and I are going to talk about a few different things. So he starts off with sharing his journey, which is very powerful. Uh, somebody who is at the top of his game at a very young age, somebody who had built up a very successful business and out of nowhere uh, really had a health issue sort of strike and and uh, and really debilitate him in, in more ways than one. And so we dive into that. We talk about what it's like to have life serve you up a, a big steaming plate of things that you don't want <laughs> and how to deal with those situations. Many of us can relate to that right now. It's very, re this conversation is very relevant because for many of us, we are, you know, we've been sort of thrust into positions and environments and situations that maybe we didn't choose. And it's taken a toll on our mindset, on our emotional body, physical body, relationships, work environment. And certainly many of you are probably thriving through all of that, but Lee brings a, a whole different perspective uh, because of his background in environmental psychology. And then we dive into what environmental psychology is, uh, the three different branches of environmental psychology, why it's important, and how you can actually utilize these tools. Uh, specifically within the workplace, we talk a little bit about the home environment, and then we dive deep into how to set up your home office. Because uh, one of the things that I've had a lot of people asking for is how do I optimize my space in order to maximize efficiency and productivity? Because I've, you know, I've, I've had people say like, I, I feel lazy at home. I don't feel like I can do the same type of work. I'm very distracted. Uh, how do I stay on task? And so we talk a little bit about this psychology behind setting up your environment so that you can still maintain productivity. So this is a great episode. Uh, again, don't forget, please leave me a rating and a review. It goes a long way. I appreciate the ones that I've been getting in the last couple of weeks. Some really solid uh, reviews. Thank you so much for everyone that has left those. And don't forget to man this episode forward with somebody that you know will benefit from listening to it, uh, whether they are facing challenges in their transitions or whether they are looking to optimize their home working environment. Without any further delay, Please welcome Mr. Lee Chambers. Yeah, it's great to be on today, Connor. Yeah, wonderful. Well, uh, when my producer put your name forward and I read a little bit about your story and then looked into your background, I was like, this this could be a pretty cool conversation. So uh, we're gonna, I feel like we're going to run the gamut today on, on talking about one or two very specific things that I think the, the listener is going to enjoy. But before we dive into that, 
um, I have to ask you the question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, so I feel like I've had quite a few defining moments, but we'll go for the biggest one. So in 2014, I just turned 29. I had a seven-figure business that I was running successfully with myself and a whole bunch of automations. Uh, I just had my son. My wife was six months pregnant with my daughter. Life was swimming. You know, we'd been cruising around the Caribbean, honeymooned in Florida, just bought my first house together with my wife and we rented out our other houses. And in so many ways, society was looking and saying, you know, Lee, you've done well for yourself after what was, you know, a difficult childhood at times. Uh, And then all of a sudden, one afternoon, my wrist suddenly doubled in size, locked my hand in place. And I was like, whoa, maybe I've fallen over and bashed it playing soccer. Maybe I've just spent too long on the computer this week. Uh, And over the course of five days, that then happened to both of my knees and also to my shoulder, putting my shoulder up by my ear and having two knees that looked like footballs. And all of a sudden I was rushed into hospital and I realized that my immune system had attacked the connective tissue in my joints, leaving me unable to walk, but also unable to feed myself properly, to go to the toilet or to shower myself. And I'd literally gone from being fully independent, fully mobile, doing whatever I wanted when I wanted to being a 29 year old stuck in hospital there relying on everyone else relying on my wife and my friends to come and do basic things and naturally I was in a lot of pain and a hell of a lot of shock because it had just happened bang like that and that experience what it did is it really changed my worldview because I had to process losing something significant but then realizing in that process just how much I'd not lost, how much I still had, and utilizing that fuel to actually get back my ability to walk and in a lot of ways fight and be proactive for my own recovery and own health. And by taking ownership of that, that has allowed me to today be someone who helps other people through a very similar process and has helped me understand that actually in our biggest struggles, in our biggest challenges, come the ability to grow, the ability to move closer towards our potential and the ability to see that a lot of the limits and boundaries that we set on ourselves are simply fabricated and, you know, available there to be broken through and surpassed. Hmm. That's, you know, it's, it's powerful, man. I mean, I can't imagine, I was thinking about myself being in your shoes while that's going on, you know, and to sort of be at this sort of peak and then all of a sudden find yourself, you know, maybe mentally or emotionally down in the valley being like, whoa, 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 what's, what's happened? You know, how, how has this happened? So what, what had actually, what had actually gone on? So your, your immune system had started to attack the the tissues in, in your body. Yeah. So my immune system had effectively become decoded for a certain type of tissue uh, near the synovinal fluid in my joints and decided that that was foreign it was going to attack it and keep attacking it until it destroyed it. So that really took a significant toll on my joints at that point and led me to really be locked in place. And the swelling was significant significant enough that a lot of damage was caused because of the amount of swelling and the amount of fluid that they needed to drain off. And what that really did was 
it was it was incredibly challenging to process because I'd never been in hospital before. I'd I'd been absolutely fine. I've been in, in many ways in great health. Like you say, at the top of that mountain, both physically, uh, you know, financially. And it literally felt like I'd taken a sledge and gone straight off the top of the mountain all the way down into the valley in the course of a week. And to process that, as well as feeling at the time that I've lost my physicality, my athletic ability as a man. And that was part of my identity as a young man that I could, you know, I could, I could, I was mobile. I could take risks. I could compete. And suddenly that felt a bit shaky. Those foundations had gone. And I had to go through a mental process as well as a physical process of recovery to really build that back up. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what that's like, especially when, you know, a lot of us have these self-induced falls down the mountain, right? That we we find ourselves at a peak and then we start to sabotage, right? Slowly eroding away uh, what we've built, whether it's a relationship or uh, whether it's a business or whatever the case may be. And then that that's a whole sort of type of work. But then when it's just this external circumstance, you know, that you have no control over that comes in and sort of like, you know, sweeps you out from under the feet in, in sort of the worst way possible. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think a lot of people can relate with that. You know, having a parent fall ill, having a child child fall ill, having themselves fall ill the way the way that you're talking about, losing a job suddenly, having you know a, a partner come in out of nowhere, perceivably, and say, "I'm I'm out of this marriage." So, so I think a lot of people can relate to the suddenness that you're talking about. So I'd, I'd love for you to just give some context, like. What was going on in your in your mind at that time? How did you get through that? Because, man, that's I feel like I'd be pissed. You know, I think I'd be like, "Fuck you, life!" Like, what the hell? Like, I I was just doing I was just doing good. What 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 are you doing here? Um, like, how did you meet? Did you come into contact with death? Like, where did your thoughts go at that time? Yeah, so I feel like I'd already built up some resilience through the mental health challenges I'd had when I was younger and facing redundancy in the economic crash. So I'd had to step out from external circumstance and take ownership going forward before. But this was a whole a whole other level of challenge that kind of came my way. So naturally at first, when I ended up in that hospital bed, I didn't have a way to process because I was in shock mm. and an awful lot of pain. <laughs> and it had happened so quickly. I'd, it was like I literally took in that knockout punch and I was dazed on the floor. <laughs> And what that kind of did is it took a few days for me to actually even process to get back to some kind of emotional balance to start to feel anything, but I don't know what to feel. And the first kind of emotional pattern I fell into was that one of frustration and despair. Mm. And it was like, you know, why me? Why now? what can I, what can I achieve out of this? So it was that kind of feeling where, you know, all of a sudden I'm 29, my son, he's 18 months old. He's not speaking yet. He's coming to the hospital to visit. He's looking at me with his big eyes like, daddy, why can't you play? And I'm like, how do I process that? So I kind of knew from previously, from some of the mental health challenges that I've had, that I had to try and find a way to express those negative emotions. So my visitors, I tried to talk to them. I tried to kind of get that out and use them almost as a little bit of therapy just so I wasn't going round in my head and spiraling and spiraling and spiraling because I knew if I suppressed them, they would come back and cause me psychological damage later. 
And that kind of transcended for about a week, but it started to move into grief. So I started to grieve for my mobility, for my physicality, and a little bit for my actual identity as a man, as someone who, you know, was quite athletic, played team sports, started to, you know, fear that I might not get that back. And actually there was a little process where I almost went into like a little grief loop and was like actually feeling like I lost it. But what I was then moved up the hospital into a longer term ward and looking out from the window of that ward, I looked across over the fields to the town I was born and where I was raised and looking at those fields, I started to realize I'd walked across those fields a lot of times but I'd never been grateful for walking until I lost it. And for me, that was like the light bulb key moment because I realized not being grateful for anything in my life, truly. I'd not shown gratitude for the people who are now helping me do the basic things. The fact that I grew up in England, never faced environmental disaster, famine, never faced war or conflict. In fact, I had free education. I was getting free healthcare while I was there. You know, I've had freedom to set up a business, work in a number of different industries. And I just said to myself, Lee, look at what you've got. Look at what you can achieve. Look at your potential and look at the opportunities you've had. This is an obstacle. But I started to tell myself, this has happened to you and for you to help you and suffer and then grow out of the other side. Because what it did is it knocked me out of that pattern of comfort that I'd fallen into. And I started to see that and understand that I actually needed something like this to push me further because I'd literally just got to that point where so many of us do. It's like the success trap. You start to feel like you're quite comfortable and you stop growing. You start to stagnate. And if anything, you just start to whistle down backwards. And I came out of hospital and went into walking rehab and I saw for myself the people who had decided and understood and made that decision that I can't control what's happened to me. Those external circumstances, that it, it's gone. But there's a little gap in there that you can step into and then choose how you respond. Because the future, it is uncertain, but you can shape many elements that are within your control. And in the room where I went through walking rehab with seven other people, Connor, four had the heads up looking at the next mountain they were going to climb. And four still had their heads down, looking into the valley they were in. And if you want to know about the recovery of the people who had their heads up and their heads down, all four people who had their heads up were out of walking rehab and into intensive physio at the same time, leaving the other four behind. And it's that process. We all have our own suffering pattern. And we all have to suffer. We all have to, you can't pretend that you don't suffer as a human being. But there comes a point where your resistance against the pain of what's happened actually fuels your suffering further than it needs to and doesn't start to become productive for you, but it starts to hold your recovery back. And by taking ownership over that and saying, you know what, I'm going to be proactive and do everything I can. I anchored into who I wanted to become. And that was me walking with my daughter who'd just been born by the time she was walking. That mm. fire got me through and made me consistent with my recovery. And so often you actually need that powerful why to do the difficult things in life. And also just anchoring to the fact that our actions should be aligned to who we want to become rather than how we feel. Because especially in recovery, 
you're not going to feel like doing the exercises, the stretches and the physio that you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think recovery is such a great metaphor and example for breaking free and breaking free of any type of pattern that we want to get out of, you know, in, in many ways. I think that we have, I was thinking about this this morning, like, I, I don't know why, but here, here it is. Like I was literally laying in bed and thinking about how we live in this culture of addiction to positivity. You know, like we, especially in, in the Western society, we are just addicted to positivity. And we, and because of that, we're, like, we're sort of addicted to the light, right? And we think like, oh, everything should be rainbows and sunshine. Yeah. And, and so when people start to address change, like the really hard things in their life, whether you know, their, their sex life and their relationship isn't the way that they want it to be, or their business is struggling, or finances are off, or their mindset is shit, whatever the case may be, there is this perception that it should be easy, you know, and as soon as they meet resistance, it's like, ah, the, you know, it, it shouldn't be this way, right? It should, it should just, why isn't this just easy for me? It's like, hello, it's not, not easy for anybody, you know? And so I love <laughs> that, that story that you're telling, and I appreciate you just being honest about it and, and having such a, a visual and visceral example of the difference in mindset, because it is one of those, okay, I know this is going to be hard. You know, I know this recovery is going to be hard. I know there's going to be resistance to doing the exercises every single day. And I think that's what a lot of people are avoiding. They're avoiding the confrontation of the resistance, right? So many of us are, are resistant avoidance. You know, we just love, it's like everything should be easy. Everything should come to me naturally. You know, it's just like, if I just believe it, you know, I'll, I'll achieve it. It's like, no, <laughs> no, you know, like to put the coffee mug down that says that crap, you know, stop listening to the people that tell you that it should, you should just manifest it. Right. That's why the, I, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember the secret, uh, that yeah, book, I remember the, secret, the secret, they made it into a Your movie. Vision ball, it's why was, yeah. It was so yeah, 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 exactly. It's why it was so popular, right? Because people, especially in like the Americana culture, people want that like super quick fix. It's why pharmaceuticals in America are and and in a lot of first world countries are just massive because we want that quick fix. And so I love what you're saying behind what I hear you saying is like, no, it's going to be hard and you're going to struggle and you're going to meet res resistance. And so what what was that like for you? Like, what was some of the resistance? And I think you kind of alluded to a lot of this, a lot of this inner strength that you've developed came from your childhood and some of the mental health issues that that you faced then. And can, can you just do you mind alluding a little bit to what that was like? Like, what are what were those challenges that you faced as a child? Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in a blue collar family, and I was the first generation university student, the first one in my whole extended family to go. And I'd had a relatively comfortable, like early millennial childhood, you know, analog, ch analog childhood, and then a digital, like teenage years. And we, I never suffered significant trauma, but I'd kind of just floated through life and not really grown and developed and shaped myself. So when I tried to make that adult, adolescent to adult transition, I just found myself like without the tools to do that without the emotional intelligence and the self-awareness to express myself authentically. I looked out to society and young black man like me, well, there wasn't really any representation to model from because, you know, I'm kind of like a, effectively a scientist, an entrepreneur and a philosopher put into a blender and mixed together. 
And I'm looking out and I see rappers, sports stars, film actors. And that wasn't me. And kind of look back to my own childhood, my own father and the male role models in my life and realised they'd never really set an example for me. And I never had a deep conversation with any of them. And it left me in quite a place where I was struggling because I started to struggle academically because I wasn't putting the effort in. I had that kind of perfectionism, not beginner's mindset, a really fixed mindset, to be honest, that had perpetuated because I'd found so many things easy that I wasn't accepting that things would be challenging. And when those challenges came, I avoided rather than approach them. And this avoidance actually built up to a point where I avoided the whole world so I locked myself in my dorm for two weeks, avoiding my exams, the work I was doing to fund university, all the social and club activities that I was doing, and any kind of messaging, either online, by telephone. I literally just tried to erase myself from earth for two weeks. Mm. And it worked really effectively until my parents came and broke into my dorm and took me home. And coming out of that, I actually realised I was taken out of the pressure and removed from university. And all of a sudden, I finally, I had the space to actually look at what had happened and realise, taking that emotion away that I hadn't failed as a human being, the process had failed, and I hadn't been prepared for some of the things that I, I did. Because I give a talk in front of 300 other students and froze halfway through, choked, and that was part of that downward spiral. But from that experience and going home and realizing I actually then had the space to look objectively and say, I hadn't prepared. I've not been trying academically in the way that I should, doing anything outside of the lectures and the tutorials that I needed to do. And really, if I'm going to ever find who I am, chisel my character and become a man, I need to approach challenge. And what happened in that period of six months where I gradually built myself up is... I become different. I started to accept that adversity doesn't discriminate. You're going to face it so many times in your life that problems are there for you to be there to be solved because you have that childhood where your parents take your problems away. But when you're an adult, you have to accept problems. Problems are giving you the chance to step up and you know solve something or think differently or move out of that normal, comfortable pattern. And going through that allowed me to realise I need to be uncomfortable sometimes. I need to look uncertainty in the face and approach it to see where it leads. Because those feelings of fear and anxiety are usually because you're stepping into growth, stepping into and towards the potential of the person that you can be. And you can't define who you are by thinking your way to clarity on it and sitting there not taking any action. By going out there and taking action, you define who you are, what resonates with you, your values and who you want to become. So after those six months and having that process allowed me to go back to university and graduate. And through that, I, I really got like a, an acuity to understand when something bad happens, say, that's interesting. And by doing that, you open up the possibilities because what you see is probably a big obstacle, but around that obstacle, there's lots of opportunities. And to be honest, you can probably get over it. In fact, mm. you can pretty much get over any obstacle as long as you believe you can 
and you start to actually see the potential to do so. But if you stand there saying, why is this here? Why now? The problem is, ultimately, you're not looking at how you're going to get past it. You're too busy worrying about it. And that's never a productive way to be. And I think that's kind of what I took forward in my own life, realizing that I have to accept adversity is coming. I have to accept that my life's going to be full of problems. It's going to be like a heartbeat. Sometimes I'm going to be at the peak of the ECG, but you know, next week I could be right down at the bottom again. But life's not a flat line. It's really awfully ziggy, zaggy, up and down all the time. But if you can accept that and realize you're going to go back up onto another peak, then you can actually look up and have your head up looking for where you're going to go rather than your head down in the sand, avoiding all the challenges that are coming your way because it's not a threat to you. It's not a tiger that's going to eat you. It's a challenge for you to step into and you can become a bigger person by tackling those. Mm. Yeah. Well said, really, really well said. And I think uh, you know, I think oftentimes we shy away from some of those experiences in life, especially when they're things that we're being invited into, you know, not the things that life just kind of come along and, and <clears throat> put a wrecking ball into our life, but the things that we know that we can execute on. So uh, good. Well, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing a little bit of shedding a little bit of light on that and, and sharing a little bit about your past. And I think that resonates with a lot of people. And um, I do want to shift a little bit into into you know this concept of environmental psychology because I feel like this is shaped, and I, and I think I'm I'm assuming that this is you know your story plays into the reason why you went into that field. Um, but for the people that are not familiar with it, can you just define what environmental psychology is for the listener? Yeah, the best way to go from a beginner's perspective is to look at the three significant strands. So the first strand and what forms the majority of my work is looking how human beings interact and behave in man-made urban environments. So how human beings, you know, feel, how they act, how they interact when they're in a domestic home, when they're on a transport network, when they're in an office building and how cities can be built, how towns can be planned, how spaces can be created to really change behaviours and increase well-being. The second strand of us look at how humans interact in natural environments. So how when we access nature, how it changes how we act, but also how more time in nature actually then changes our perceptions and interactions and can quite often change behaviours. The third strand, and probably the most interesting, um, is looking at environmental behaviour and how we can change it and how it's affected by so many things such as, you know, social proof, social norms, group theory, but more to the point, how you can have one person in one house believing that climate change is going to devastate the world and their neighbour believing it doesn't exist. Mm within very much a similar environment, but very different environmental views and trying to understand how people can be moved from one place to another and why as human beings with a relative level of rationality, you can get such wide spectrums of environmental beliefs and behaviors. Yeah, really well, well said. I think there's, those three categories are, are great. We can maybe dive into a little bit deeper into each of them, but uh, I could kind of hear people listening to this podcast being like, 
yeah, why is it that my next door neighbor doesn't believe in climate change? <laughs> you know, like, like there's the, like the world's on fire, uh, you know, CO2 levels are rising, the ozone, all that kind of stuff. It's like pretty much every environmental scientist is like, Hey, we should probably pay attention to this. <laughs> and, and, and yet, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people who live next to people who, uh, just don't believe that at all. And so how, like, can you give us a little bit of insight into how that comes about? Like, is that, is that a, you, like, you know, obviously from an environmental standpoint, is it a byproduct of the environment that that person has grown up in that it's sort of installing their belief systems? And so as they move through life, those belief systems are just held on to, or what, is, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a real complex, interconnected web <laughs> of, of considerations when we look at this kind of thing. And what you see is, again, like, like, you, like you allude to there, a lot of beliefs are transferred from that young age when you start almost picking up those beliefs in your backpack about how the world is, the people that you should listen to, and where you'll get your data and sources from when it comes to looking from a science perspective. And so often for people, and in the world we live in today, there's a large amount of confirmation bias because social media and the attention economy in general funnels you towards what you already believe and search for often. And that really reinforces those beliefs. But for many people, it really comes from an understanding of what you consume because that then really builds on those foundations. And there are people with those foundations who honestly believe that the experts are not experts at all. Experts don't know anything. And that level of trust and credibility for those people, they're not willing to listen. What's interesting is when you actually look at the wider perspective, how people interpret this data and to shift those mindsets and beliefs, it's very different. Some people would actually really resonate with pictures that show you how this glacier looked in 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020, a visual representation. Because what we have, unfortunately, in our field so often is, you know, field studies and case studies. People don't have to read them as raw data. Yeah. And what they don't always appreciate is like being thrown a bunch of statistics and platitudes. They actually want to see and what we find is, you know, a large part of the population of this planet live quite close to uh, water source. And what you generally find is human beings, depending on where they are, I mean, if you live in a, in a low-level lying place, you're going to be much more concerned about rising sea levels because, take, for example, the village that you grew up in could be projected to be underwater in 10 years' time. Now, that becomes more than just a little problem. But the guy who lives a few miles away, a, a thousand foot above sea level, he probably won't think the same way. And it's about actually looking, even though he might physically be able to see the changes happening. Human beings can sometimes be quite insular, quite insensitive, and <laughs> simply not really care that much. And that is an unfortunate reality. And something that you alluded to not that long ago, about the fact that modern culture, we look at things in isolation way, way too often. This is a massively interconnected issue and it requires, you know, quite a wide cultural shift because 
individual human beings can do a lot collectively. They can do massively amplified amounts, but it does require an interconnected strategy across nations, companies, and individuals, which is obviously incredibly challenging given just how diverse, how different the values are. And at a base level, I actually do work around littering because that's something that I can do at an individual level to help people shift that mindset and realize that if you litter, it gives people the social proof to litter as well. Mm. The more an area is littered, the less pride people have in it, the more likely they are to litter. And the truth is with a lot of environmental behaviors, they amplify and spiral either positively or negatively and they compound. And that is probably one of the biggest issues that we have because you can actually get a swing compounding for the better and that momentum increases exponentially, but it just requires a lot of people to really anchor in. And the younger generation, we've got considerably more activism, considerably more investment because it's the younger person's world that's effectively being changed and not for the better. And yet you've still got that massive spectrum of young people from the very start activists who's out every week campaigning all the way over to the other side where they almost want to rebel against governments, against anyone in authority because they don't feel like they are represented in this world. And they will openly litter in rebellion. They will openly deny climate change, climate concern as a rebellion against the authority and as a rebellion against the structures that we have in place. And that really then comes down to a mindset. If you want to rebel against that, maybe you should actually try to action change to make it a more fairer, interconnected, inclusive society where you feel like you belong rather than your behavior being defined by the fact that you don't feel like you're a part of it. And therefore you're going to you know, negatively behave to make a point. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I think one of the I had Charles Eisenstein, who's just a, I think a brilliant individual on the show twice in the last uh, several months, I guess. Yeah. And one of the things that we talked about was this myth of separation. Uh, what a, a lot of what you're talking about is that when we feel separate from the environment around us, or we feel separate from the communities around us, it it causes this adverse behavior where we do want to go against right? And that rebellion archetype that's psychologically embedded into all of us gets activated, right? And it's like, I have something to rebel against. I don't feel, I don't feel like I belong. I mean, anybody can look at their family system and see somebody in their family who didn't feel like they belong. What do they do? They rebelled, right? Or they, or they pieced out or they didn't participate or, you know, they, they embellished that part. And so in, in many ways, this is a, a path of, endeavoring for inclusion in, in some ways, but in, in a healthy way, because I think that can swing in the opposite direction, right? We see a lot of cancel culture happening right now, and that's yep. it's also not inclusion, right? It's, no. it's, it's not inclusion at all. And so there's, there's sort of like these opposing forces that are rebelling against mainstream culture and society that are inhibiting us from actually working on that separation that a lot of people are feeling. I think there's an incredible depth psychologist named Francis Weller, and he says the, the the core wound, our original wound, is that we feel like we don't belong. Yeah. And that at the source of a lot of what we experience 
at the source of a lot of our insecurities, our fears, our doubts, our anxieties, is this sensation, this underlying notion that we don't belong in some way or that we're not worthy of belonging. And, and so we need to be able to start to work on those core foundational principles. But to do that as a collective, as you're talking about, is, is incredibly you know, incredibly challenging, but let's, let's bring this back down to it. Cause I think we just, you know, blew that up into this sort of like esoteric, not existential, but it's sort of very large issue. And so I want to bring this back down to the family, to the business, to the individual. How does environmental psychology support an individual uh, in the relationship? How does it support a business in in creating a better environment for people to flourish and thrive? What does that look like? How, where do we begin? Yeah, so if you kind of take my work within business as, as an example, I will go into a company and, and many have offices. Obviously, the whole office scenario has completely changed over this last few months, which has really been an incredible disruptor and a way to look at things differently and start to break through that status quo. But in your typical office scenario, you get an architectural design, uh, financial backing and budgets aligned. You get facilities and a board who sign off and implement and execute a, de a delivery of a design. And then at some point, the end user, the employees go and sit down where they're told to. And throughout those processes, so often there's very little end user input. And then those people spend you know, half of their working life in that space and the reality is that when it comes to humans and environmental stresses we all have an individual marker so if you're looking at lighting noise ventilation density we all have a comfortable place where we can execute our best work where we can feel most you know rejuvenated because work doesn't always have to be somewhere that you go and then leave at the end of the day and crumple into a chair and eat some chips and watch some television it doesn't need to be like that even though sometimes society and wants to tell you that that's how life is go to work come back relax sleep do it again um but we can actually build regenerative workplaces that are really looking at social design elements biophilic design elements and evidence-based design so a lot of what I do is actually going into an office and I don't need more often than not a massive budget because I'm looking at where's the natural light being blocked? Where's the natural light actually causing problems? How can we amend that? Looking at the density of how people are spaced because you don't want to be that sole worker in a room feeling incredibly lonely and isolated. You don't want to be sat so close to the next person that you feel that your personal space is being invaded every minute of every day. And when it comes to office design layouts, you want to be, it wants to flow for the workers who are there. They carry out a particular task. So they're going to actually have a certain way that they feel it should be. And that's that element of belonging and investment where they give feedback on the design. And all of a sudden you bring that together and realize that more often than not, I'll speak to 50 employees in an office and 40 of them will say, this annoys me every day. They'll have been and raised that issue before, but usually as a singular unit, at which point it's just highlighted, noted down, and nothing's done about it. And when we actually kind of look at the bigger scheme of things, I then work into the psychological environments. So how inclusive 
is the workplace. But not only that, but the actual values that are communicated, are they congruent? Do the leaders actually live by those values? Are decisions passed through different stakeholder groups with those values aligned? Because ultimately, these this is what creates you know dissonance in workplaces when all of a sudden you've got some values on the wall, lovely, you know, they're written but they're not lived, and people want to find a way to attach their values to the company's journey, the company's mission, and find a way to express those on an everyday basis. So we then look at how we can find people spaces to have the conversations that need to be had, how we can get employees feeling like they've got a certain level of autonomy in the role to grow into and also to grow as a person. Then we look at how inclusion and belonging can be utilised so that everyone has a voice and the ability to participate on a certain level and ultimately how you can build teams rather than groups of people because so often you look at an organisation, it's just a group of people. And, you know, I've spoken to leadership teams where they don't even know about each other's, you know, private lives. And we're not, I'm not talking about the juicy stuff. I'm talking about what they do at a weekend. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the people who you work with are human. Your whole unit are people. And sometimes that's just lost. And naturally, it creates an environment that can be quite a challenging place. And it ultimately drains people. And that's not a productive way if you want creativity, innovation, productivity, and good levels of retention. Yeah, I think again, there's there's the not there's the belonging wound, right? Not feeling like we belong. And I think that is the difference between I'm a part of a team that I feel integrated into and I can contribute to versus I'm just a part of a group. You know, like there is a group, and uh, I mean, I've experienced that a lot at different uh, different companies that I've worked with. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is to talk about the home environment, the home office, and how we can maybe set up our space for success, considering that, man, so many people are working from home. And, you know, I think I've, I've been doing this for a long time. And as I sit at my desk, you know, I have floor to ceiling windows in front of me, and I'm looking out into the sky. And that is, has been incredibly important for me, because uh, I spent years working, you know, in a, in a, in a retail store or in an office with, you know, just the fluorescent lighting, no windows, you can't see nature. Uh, and so it's incredibly important for me now to just be able to have natural light coming in and to be able to see the sky. And, you know, and obviously I, I have the, the luxury and the privilege to be able to have a place that, that has that, yeah. but I intentionally, sourced out a home where I knew that if I'm going to work from home, knowing that, uh, then there are some requirements that I need. And so what are some of the pieces that you have found are important for the general population when it comes to working from home, considering that, I mean, uh, I think I read somewhere that like 38 to 42% of jobs that were in office before will never go back to the office. And that a lot of jobs will just be from home moving forward or from, uh, you know, from small offices, wherever people decide. So how do we start to look at our, at our, our, our environment differently within the home, knowing that we need to create an office and what, where do we, where do we start with that? Yeah. So, I mean, so often our domestic design 
simply not incorporating people working from home. It's not got that far yet. Like I obviously work within the workplace and I've started to see now domestic design considering that it's likely that there'll be an, you know, an integrated office space within that home design. And what I really want to say first off to people is so often, and you won't, probably won't have heard this, but on a general corporate level, in my experience, people who transition to homeworking, it takes six months while they do the tech, while they give you a staggering period, while they help you set up this and, you know, provide you with these bits and pieces and gradually work you through and give you that acclimatization period and find out, you know, do you want to remote work three, four or five days? Most of, most of the planet has done it in a week. You've adapted and you've acclimatized and everyone really needs to give himself a pat on the back, especially as a lot of people were trying to educate from home while doing all that yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, and a lot of, and a lot of people are not, uh, they're not used to it. Right. So it's like pajama bottoms and, you know, Netflix is, uh, is open on one of the tabs and, you know, the, the breaks are a little bit longer. I see you people. I know what you're doing at home. <laughs> I, I know I've been, I've been there, you know, oh, yeah. watching, watching YouTube a little bit too long for the first little while. It's like, Oh shit, I got work to do. <laughs> It actually reminds me back to uh, an executive that I spoke to a few years ago, and he actually said to one of his employees, just because you're remote working doesn't mean you can sit on the couch with your remote in your lap. And mm. that was the prevailing attitude of quite a lot of mm. these more traditional companies. Look how that's changed. So yeah, when it comes to kind of all of a sudden working from home, you've got a massive amount of control over your environment that you won't have had before. That's a big responsibility, but also a massive opportunity and a privilege for you to design your own scheduling and your own space. Now, there's absolutely no doubt that some people have considerably more space than others. But from a from a kind of perspective of working, it's important that you still anchor in some of the scheduling elements. So I quite often tell people to leave the home and walk around the block, sim stimulate your commute, get some sunlight in your eyes, get, the, get your blood pumping, some cognitive processing. So you come back in a psychological frame to work, really try and partition a particular space, preferably not in the most high traffic area you've got in your premises, especially when you're working with other people, with flatmates, with children there. Try and partition a space. And that sometimes requires some moving about. And you find that space, make sure it's tidy before you go to work that day. So tidy it the night before, try and have that space, preferably in a place where, you know, you're getting the amount of natural light that you can. Like so many people want to use like the box room with no windows, but it's you're going to find that that jades you over the day. We need natural light. You know, we need light coming into our eyes. It helps us with our circadian rhythms and it just brightens our mood, even on such a, you know, basic and simple level. But in that space, try and keep things in an organized way and remember that you can you with you the ability to actually create this space bring little elements that bring you a little bit of joy but ensure that you don't have in your eye line lots of things that will detach you from work so if you see that ironing pile if you see those toys while you're working it just disconnects you from actually doing deep work and this is a really great opportunity for us to you know we do need to communicate with the people that we are surrounded with to let them know that if there's a particular period where you can't be interrupted, when it comes to communications, 
ensure people are aware that just because you're at home doesn't mean that you're not working because many things can still be addressed either in the dinner hour that you set for yourself or even after work because we've had those anchors removed it's important to make sure those anchors and boundaries and limits are set back in for other people to manage the expectations of the people that you work with but in my experience if we have like backgrounds if we can get like you said natural light coming in that's perfect from a scientific perspective if we can incorporate green or blue into our surroundings in our home office we become more balanced more productive and generally feel more levels of serenity quite often people tend to use mural type landscapes of you know natural scenes because they're just ground us and generally desensitize us a little bit to the sheer amount of you know stimulation and inputs that we have on a daily basis and again when we're kind of looking at setting ourselves up a lot of people don't really have ergonomic chairs and desks and all these but you can get really creative like i've had to do this a few times with clients but their chair and their desk simply incompatible they're gonna be you know suffering with back and neck problems i've told them to get the ironing board out that's one of the things that we have in our in our home that simulates a functional desk which moves up and down depending on where you need it to be and you know employees are starting to get a little bit more wise now to the fact that they're going to have a lot of msk issues when people start to say you know what my back's falling apart because i've been working on this you know setup from home but yeah connor i mean so often it's about kind of building that environment that's you know it's we we don't want to be surrounded by you know stimulation from other things we do need to utilize some of the apps and tools that can keep us away from the attention economy which continually will distract you especially when you're working from home and for some people truth be told it's much easier for them some people are going to find this really really difficult and probably need to query with their employers if they can go back to the office at some other points, if they can potentially use co-working spaces, coffee shops, or take themselves out of that home environment. Because there's absolutely no doubt about it. Our homes are generally designed to live, sleep, and relax in. And some people can carve out a really nice place, a place where ultimately at the end of the day, they can put all the work and digital stuff in one place and it's there. That is effectively your work. But for some people, that's going to be a real challenge and utilizing the other spaces that we have to get you out of that atmosphere and to get you into a place where you're most productive. But it's a real chance now to experiment with that. Can you be productive at home by continually changing and evolving how you work? How does that feel compared to the office? And can you use other spaces to get the best out of yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I I appreciate that because I think, you know, I went through a few different iterations of getting my workspace to be something that was conducive for my flourishing. And I noticed a huge difference like in, in our apartment that we're in right now, when we first moved into it, I had the desk facing a wall. I didn't want any distractions. I thought it'd be nice for, you know, clients to have a little bit of a view behind but I found that I wasn't very productive there because, you know, I was just facing a wall and, you know, we have these big windows. And so I've had to move things around and maneuver and remove distractions. And and now the only thing that I that I see is out is outside. Right. I can see a building across from me because we're in Manhattan. And so, you know, there's nothing but buildings, but we're high enough <laughs> up that I can see that I can see the skyline and and I can and I can see the sky and I get a lot of natural light. 
And as soon as I moved out here, I got a lot of, I got a huge boost in productivity. And I found that my distraction level went down because there was nothing in front of me. And so there, there are some very simple things we can do. I also find mixing it up to be pretty important. Um, so like you're saying, sometimes I, I'll use a, a surface uh, in one of the uh, one of the um, tables in here, and there's a big candle on top of it. And I'll put my computer on top and write emails and stand up. So I have like a, a sort of like makeshift stand up desk. Yeah. Um, I also use a meditation cushion sometimes, and so I'll I'll see clients or have calls or write emails, and I'll just be sitting on the floor on the meditation cushion with, uh, you know, a, a table in front of me and the computer's at the right height. And so it's been a lot of uh, playing around with different mediums and different levels. But what I have found is, is that very quickly, I started to find a groove for how my body wanted to work, yeah. right? How my body wanted to work. And I think we have largely in corporate America, cut that part out, right? We've never included the body into the work, right? It's yeah. just been like, you just need to sit down and get shit done. It's like, no, 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 no. You need to, you need to find what the ebb and flow of your body is looking for. And so uh, I'm being mindful of time because we do have to wrap up here soon, but can you just speak to that last part and then, and then we'll, we'll have to wrap up. Yeah. So, I mean, so often we don't listen to our bodies, but they, they're an amazing feedback loop and looking to honor our ultradium rhythms. So we generally work best in 60 to 90 minute segments and they run as smaller, you know, shorter rhythms within our circadian rhythm. And what we actually find is we can do our best work if we connect for around 60 to 90 minutes, but then disconnect for between 10 and 15. And that's something that's absolutely vital and that I go through every single client working from home because the ability to disconnect and then reattach back to work allows us to have less attention residue. It allows us to work more deeply on tasks. But what it actually does is it honors our body's rhythms and that improves our sleep. It improves our mood, it improves how we eat, and it allows us to disconnect from the world. Now, right down there is a yoga mat, which I use, <laughs> and a second desk. And I use them to break up the day, to get those breaks. And it's so important that in, in those 10 to 15 minutes, get outside and walk, you know, do something that's active rest, meditation, silence, prayer, yoga, just something that disconnects you from work. Because our ability to reattach based on those rhythms, it amplifies the power of the work that we can do. It really generates massive waves of productivity, but we've got to treat it as waves. And those waves have that pause. You've got to have that pause as well. And when we honor those natural rhythms, suddenly we get into flow much more easily with our work. And we actually don't feel as jaded because everyone knows what it's like when they try and work through those ways, you end up burnt out, you end up making mistakes, and you end up actually affecting your emotional regulation and your hormonal regulation. It gets to the point where at the end of the day, you end up having arguments with people. And it's just because you're not honored and listened to your body. And for me, going through the challenges that I've had, I've actually started to be able to listen to my body more. And if we can all listen to our body and treat our body as an experiment, then all of a sudden we can unlock so much potential. So good, man. So good. And, and, you know, I think they're, as I'm getting blasted by the sun right now, <laughs> it's just gotten brighter and brighter as we've been going through this interview. Uh, but those are, those are some really in, important tips. And 
And I, the, the only last thing I would add is for just a gentle reminder for people of how they're using those in-between breaks. Because uh, I think the the tendency for a lot of people to get lost in social media these yeah. days in those in-betweens is so much higher because there's no boss looking over your shoulder. There's no coworker, you know, sitting beside you trying to talk to you. You just by yourself. And what I've noticed with a lot of my clients is that, you know, they've started to complain about more distraction, right? Being more distracted working at home because all of a sudden there's no, there's no sort of like social agreement of like, okay, yeah, you have your break, but you know, maybe we're going to have some socializing. Uh, So notice if you're lost on Reddit or YouTube or Facebook or Instagram and, and, you know, maybe do what Leah's suggesting, commit to uh, all of your breaks, going outside and walking around phone free, right? Or listening to something and and being out in nature and just plugging your feet into the ground or something yeah. like that. So really, really, really good stuff. So Lee, uh, you know, we're going to have to wrap up here, but I think you have a book coming out soon. Is that correct? Yeah. So I have a book called How to Conquer Anything coming out in November. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And is that, where where can people find that? Where Where can people find you so they can find your book in November? Yeah, so I you people can find me on www.essentialized.co.uk on leechambers.org and the book will be available through the website and also on Amazon as Kindle and paperback. Amazing. Wonderful. Well, Lee, listen, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Uh, pleasure to have you here. Glad we got to dive in uh, to a few different things and, and really kind of go deep on, on a couple of these subjects. I'm sure that we'll have you back on in the in the maybe not so distant future because this is a great conversation. So thank you so much uh, for everybody that's out there listening. Uh, make sure that you share this episode, man it forward and share it with a few people that you know would enjoy this conversation. Uh, and don't forget to leave us a rating and review goes a long way to get us getting us onto the phones and into the ears of other people. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.